Welcome to the Apostles Houston podcast, and thanks for listening. As a community following Jesus in Houston, we want to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the kinds of things Jesus did. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we invite you to join us for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. in Houston Heights. For more information, visit us online at ApostlesHouston.org. So uh, again, good morning. I'm excited. We have been in our series on the Sermon on the Mount for a a couple weeks now. We're going to continue in that series. Last week, we uh, dove uh, headfirst into the Beatitudes and really talked about uh, the, the Beatitudes and, and how Jesus begins this amazing, amazing set of teachings uh, that he brings us here in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 5. So I want to encourage you to open up a Bible. There should be some in the seat backs near you uh, to open up to Matthew chapter 5, verses I just read, verses 3 through 11. Uh, and we're going to be camped out there again this morning. And as we dive back into the Beatitudes, uh, I want us to consider how these promises, as we talked about them last week, how these promises uh, really have the power to shape who we are and how we live. So we talked about the fact that these are blessings in light of the eternal promises, the eternal rewards that God has for us. And so I want to look more specifically uh, at the Beatitudes. And in fact, I want us to focus in on one Beatitude in particular. I wish we could look at all of them, uh, but we're going to look at and really focus in on the first Beatitude uh, there in verse 3 and try to unpack that a little bit together. I, I did want to encourage you just to take time to, to look and study and think about each of these Beatitudes because I think they are worthy of our time and worthy of our study. Uh, and so whether you do that on your own or in your life group, I encourage you to do that. Just a couple of resources that might help you. I've found to be really helpful. Uh, John Stott's message uh, on the Sermon on the Mount uh, series is excellent on this, just giving you a really clear picture of each beatitude. Uh, and then also Nikki Gumbel's The Lifestyle of Jesus, which is what our life group leaders are, are working through, is another great resource. So uh, John Stott, Message of the Sermon on the Mount, and Nikki Gumbel's The Lifestyle of Jesus would be great places uh, to dive into the Beatitudes. But let's, let's look at the first one uh, together this morning. So blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says these words. They, they launch his sermon. The first words he gives us, and so they're significant in their own right because they begin the beatitude. So blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So when I hear that beatitude, a, a, a few questions come up immediately for me. And so I just want to kind of work through these questions together. The questions would be, who are the poor in spirit? What does it look like to be poor in spirit? And then what does it mean to receive the kingdom? So I just want to work through those three questions together. Who are the poor in the spirit? What does it look like to be poor in the spirit? And what does it mean to receive the kingdom of heaven? So first, who are the poor in spirit? So we, we might be used, if you grew up in the church, we might be used to hearing the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Great. All right, next. And we kind of just, we, we don't really pause to think about, wait, what does that mean? What does poor in the spirit actually represent? If we step back from it, if we were to encounter it originally, I think we would have been arrested. We talked about this last week. The, the Beatitudes should stop us in our tracks. And they would have stopped the original listeners in their tracks. Poor in spirit is a strange phrase 
in other words, especially outside of kind of religious and Christian circles, right? This is not kind of common jargon. I've never seen it on a resume, for example. Poor in spirit, okay. Uh, in fact, I would say if you see that on a resume, don't hire that candidate, right? Nobody likes a humble bragger, okay? So just, but what, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? It's not kind of common uh, in, in our everyday language. I, I want to give us a basic definition and, and then kind of elaborate that on that a little bit. A basic definition might be this, to acknowledge one's spiritual need. Poor in spirit, uh, you could think about it in terms of acknowledging one's spiritual need. It means living, another way to say it, in a desperate dependence on God, a desperate dependence on the Lord. Uh, it's to begin each day Live each moment uh, believing, God, I can't actually live without you. I can't do this without you. Please help me. That's the posture uh, of living poor in the spirit. As Dale Allison says in his commentary, poor in spirit means to be beggars before God. I love that image. Beggars before God. And it, it kind of helps bring a, a fuller picture, I think, to this idea of poor in the spirit. Allison's use of the word beggars. Luke's gospel, for example, uh, brings this image home, recording Jesus' teaching simply as, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. He goes on to, to hold that up against a woe to the rich, for you have received your comfort. And so, in other words, Jesus is blessing all forms of poverty, think, think about it as a fully orbed blessing to those who are poor and to those who are poor in spirit. As Dale Bruner observes, Jesus put himself squarely on the side of the wretched of the earth in this beatitude. And so his blessing extends to all who acknowledge their spiritual poverty and especially to those who also experience material poverty. It's not an either or, it's a yes, it's a both and. So the whole idea of poverty then, this, this idea of, of absolute dependence and even helplessness absolutely flies in the face of our modern day ideas of success and in particular our ideas about self-esteem, right? Self-esteem says our fundamental problem is that we don't think enough of ourselves. You are failing in life, you're not succeeding, you're struggling because you don't think enough of how amazing you are. Right? That's self-esteem. That was pumped into me as a kid in our elementary school. That's this idea of self-esteem. And that idea of self-esteem, it actually emerges uh, from an older philosophical idea of self-reliance. Right? So self-reliance uh, comes uh, from this idea uh, that we actually have everything we need within us. Right? Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, he wrote it this way. He said, trust thyself. Every heart reverberates to that iron string. Right? He's saying that is the cord of life. Trust thyself. Discontent, he says, is the want of self-reliance. It is the infirmity of the will. So what Emerson is articulating is our cultural belief that real joy and fulfillment in life are to be found in the pursuit of self-reliance, self-confidence, self-determination, self-esteem. You see a theme. Self, self, self. Right? Just as in the garden... The lie is that we don't need God. So what does Jesus do with that? Here's what he does right off the bat. He blows it up. 
He totally blows that up. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus says, blessed are the God-reliant, in other words, not the self-reliant. Blessed are the God-confident, not the self-confident. Blessed are the unworthy, not those full of self-esteem. And so again, Jesus, as we talked about last week, he's turning things upside down on us. He's disorienting us. He's challenging the status quo. He redefines poverty in light of God's eternal promises. As John Piper said of the first beatitude, here Jesus takes the disease that we fear the most, namely our own helplessness, and instead of curing it, he makes it the doorway into heaven. I love that. Jesus redefines poverty, spiritual poverty, material poverty. He redefines it in light of the eternal promises of God and his kingdom. And so those who are poor in the spirit live in this place of knowing their desperate dependence for God, their need for the Lord. So that's, that's what we might say uh, in terms of defining what poor in the spirit is. Who are they and what it means? Second thing I ask is, what does it look like? What does this actually look like? You, you kind of tease this out in the midst of everyday life. <clears throat> I think it's important to remember that Jesus' teachings don't occur in a vacuum in the Sermon on the Mount. They come in the full revelation of God's word. They come in the full revelation of the gospel and of his son. And so God has always, in other words, blessed those who are poor in the spirit. This is not new. God has always blessed those who are poor in the spirit. So for example, we might look at the life of Abraham or of David or of Ruth. We can look to uh, individuals in the New Testament and we can see in their lives, the centurion, for example, who came to Jesus, confident that only Jesus could help him. Uh, the Canaanite woman, the Apostle Peter, on and on and on. We can see these living examples. And I would encourage you uh, with this verse as kind of a filter to go back and read some of those stories in the gospel and, and in the Old Testament and in Paul's letters. Read and see poor in the spirit, what it looks like. Just to give you one example, consider Moses. So when God came to Moses with this mission, he said, I want you to lead my people out of Israel. What was Moses' response? He said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, uh, either heretofore or since thou hast spoken to thy servant. I am slow of speech and of tongue. It just cracks me up that the way this is translated in the King James, which is why I had to keep this, it includes either heretofore, I am not eloquent. <laughs> just, that's so perfect. Uh, but, but what was God's response right, to Moses. He got angry with Moses, right? He got angry with Moses, not because of his humble assessment of his own abilities, but because of his lack of faith in God's ability. God responded and said to Moses, who made man's mouth? Who makes him dumb or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go and I will be your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. It's Exodus chapter four. God did not give Moses a self-esteem talk. Did you notice that? Oh, Moses, stop putting yourself down. You're, you're great. You are somebody. You are eloquent. You used heretofore. You're great. You've got this, man. What God said was, stop 
focusing on your own unworthiness and uselessness and look up to me. You're focused on the wrong thing. Look to me. I made the mouth. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to help you. I'll teach you what to say. So look to me, he says, and live. Right? It's the call of the gospel right there in the story of Moses. God says that same thing to us. Look to me in desperate dependence, and I will help you. I will give you life. I will lead you in the way. If we want to know what it means to be poor in spirit, the clearest picture is Jesus himself. It's the beauty of the Beatitudes. They are lived out by Christ himself. If poverty in God's kingdom is synonymous with dependence on God the Father, Jesus was the most impoverished person who ever lived. And so we look no further than Jesus. Jesus said he was meek and lowly in heart, Matthew eleven twenty nine. Read the Gospels and notice Jesus' ability to relate to everyone, right? This is what stood out to me as I was thinking about this in Jesus' life this week, that, that Jesus was able to connect with almost anyone. In fact, he was able to connect with people from all walks of life, rich and poor, right? You think about Zacchaeus, for example, or, or the blind beggar. Jesus was able to relate to the super pious, to, to prostitutes, to, to, to tax collectors, to everyone across the social and economic spectrum. Jesus was able to love them. His love for people and his treatment of them as precious children of God was driven by a poverty of spirit, by humility. Jesus never thought he was too good for anyone or anything. Jesus' humility not only manifested itself in compassion, but in his trust of his heavenly Father for his basic needs, for his protection, for deliverance, and even to death on a cross. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 2, that we should look to Jesus as an example of being poor in the spirit. Philippians chapter two, verses five through eight, he writes this, in your relationships with one another. So it's not just about my relationship with God, it's actually spilling out into our church family, our relationships with one another. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus himself is the exemplar of being poor in the spirit. And so he invites us and empowers us by his Holy Spirit to follow him in this way of humility. And so we can look to examples in scripture, namely to Jesus of what it looks like to be poor in the spirit. And then final question, what does it mean to receive the kingdom? What is the eternal promise here attached uh, to being poor in the spirit? Jesus uses this phrase numerous times in his sermon, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, as it's also called. And one way to think about what the kingdom of God is, it's the reign and rule of God, but it's also, in a sense, the ultimate aim of all history, of redemptive history. It's where everything is going, in a sense. It's God's perfect reign over the world, and one day he will set all things to right. History will culminate in a world where the Lord's Prayer, which interestingly lies at the heart of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, that his prayer will be answered, a world where God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The promise to those who depend on God is that God will come through. He's worthy of our trust. 
He'll come through when he comes back, but he'll also come through now. Being poor in spirit, depending on Jesus, frees us from the bondage of self-reliance and selfish living. It's the promise of salvation and hope to those who feel their inadequacy and their brokenness. It's the promise of healing for those who feel crippled by life. I love the image that Nicky Gumbel offers. Uh, He says, this promise of the kingdom is like God flinging open the doors of heaven to the beggars. It's inviting in all of us who recognize our need for spiritual refuge, for a place where we can set aside our brokenness and our burdens and our pain, and we can receive from Jesus himself all that our souls long for. The promise of the kingdom gives us spiritual refuge. The spiritually desperate and the spiritually homeless find a home. And we, the church, are meant to be a foretaste of that promise. That's one of the things I love about apostles. I hear repeatedly this idea that when people come here, one of the things that really ministers to them is a real sense of peace, of God's presence. I've even heard the word refuge used frequently. And that's what the church is supposed to be. The church is supposed to be a place where the spiritually humbled and broken before God are welcomed in. It's a home for beggars. For in his presence, there's fullness of joy. So let me share just a a couple of closing thoughts in light of what we've talked about here around this idea of being poor in the spirit and receiving the kingdom. I just want to highlight three things. First, that being poor in the spirit is foundational to our life in Christ. As we move forward into the Sermon on the Mount, if we hear Jesus teaching rightly, it should bring us back to the Beatitudes again and again and again. Uh, The Beatitudes, uh, as one author put it, function as an overture to the symphony of the sermon. So they're they're first for a reason. And I would even say, uh, blessed are those who are poor in the Spirit is first for a reason. Why? Because what's happening here in Jesus' teaching is he is constantly confronting us, not only with our sin, but our selfish behavior. In love and in grace, he wants to address the condition of our hearts. It shines a light on our pride, on our sin, and our weakness as we work our way through his teaching on the sermon. And so the Beatitudes in particular, this first Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, offer those who are honest about that comfort, right? It it, it brings us back to comfort. It brings us back to peace, to be in the presence and dependent on Jesus. It brings us to Christ again and again and again. There are words of grace that can only be received by the humble who return to Jesus. Dale Bruner describes this process of coming back to the Beatitudes again and again in the Christian life uh, in a way that I thought was really helpful. He says it in terms of kneeling, standing, and walking. This is what he means. He says, when we encounter Jesus, uh, we find ourselves kneeling before him, fallen on the ground, broken and humbled by our sin and our weakness. And yet in his love and in his mercy, he invites us to stand. And he lifts us up. And then he sends us out to walk in the world to help others. And so you get this rhythm of 
kneeling, standing, and then walking. But here's the thing. Jesus knows that when we go out into the world, we're going to get beat down again by life in this broken, sinful world. And through suffering and persecution, we'll be thrown back on our knees. <laughs> we thrown back on our knees. And so Jesus will come again to us, and he will bless us, and he will lift us up, and he will send us out to stand and to walk in the world. And Bruner's point is this happens over and over and over. This is the Christian life. Kneeling, standing, walking. Kneeling, standing, walking. I love what he nicknames this process. He calls it the aerobics of discipleship. Being poor in the spirit is not a temporary condition. It's not limited to certain followers of Jesus. It's the fundamental posture for us as followers of Christ. It is the place where we meet Jesus and where he lifts us up. So I just want to encourage all of us, maybe today you're kneeling. And here in this beatitude, Jesus blesses you. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And he wants to lift you up so you can stand and you can walk again. Second thing I just want to observe is that we become poor in the spirit by drawing near to Jesus. When we're confronted with uh, something like this in scriptures, and I think particularly with the Beatitudes, our temptation here is, is to turn inward immediately, to, to begin to focus and, and take an introspective posture. And we might think that the way to change who we are, because this is dealing with internals, right? To change who we are comes through a lot of self, kind of focused self-examination. But the opposite is true. There's a place for self-examination. But self-examination is not the fundamental move that the Beatitudes are inviting us into. If we want to experience healing and deliverance and transformation, it does not come by fixating on our sin. It comes by fixing our eyes on Jesus. When we fix our eyes on Christ, and we focus less on me and more on thee, that's when transformation begins to take place. So drawing near to Jesus, uh, just functionally, one of the things it does is it, it helps reveal how far, far we fall short, right? It, it helps reveal light shines on the darkness, right? Bringing things into the light, and that humbles us, and it highlights our need. It moves us to a posture of being on our knees. Becoming poor in the Spirit isn't so much a goal in that sense. It's a side effect, almost. It's a side effect. It's not like uh, what happens, it's not unlike what happens when you spend uh, a lot of time with a good friend or when you've been married to someone for a long time, right? You begin to sound like them and you begin to look maybe like them and you begin to think alike. You can finish each other's sentences, right? That dynamic is what, is what we're called into, invited into, that kind of intimacy and life-shaping relationship. We're invited into that in Christ, it's what we call being uh, formed in Christ or Christoformity. We, we are shaped in the likeness of Jesus because we are so with him and draw near to him. So becoming in, uh, poor in spirit is similar. It's not a goal that we set to become poor in spirit. Right? It's a side effect of spending a lot of time with Jesus. People who spend a lot of time with Jesus, they, they don't just act humble. They are humble. They don't just 
act apart for the externals. They actually become poor in spirit. They become like Christ. So we become poor in spirit by, by drawing near to Jesus. And then the last thing is that heart transformation, which is what we're really talking about in the Beatitudes. Heart transformation takes time. It takes time. The Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount are not ultimately about behavior modification. They are about heart transformation, which leads to altered behaviors, kingdom behaviors. But that's not where it begins. God's desire uh, is uh, for mercy, he says, not for sacrifice, for hearts, not just actions. And so this kind of transformation, it takes time. It's what Eugene Peterson describes as a long obedience in the same direction. Uh, A few weeks ago, I came across this amazing fact. I just wanted to end with this, share this with you. Um, Don't show the picture yet. Thanks, Jay. All right. So what would you guess is the oldest living thing in the world? And if I had lunch with you and I told you this this week, don't blurt it out. What is the oldest living thing in the world? Anybody got a guess? A tree. Okay, great. Yes, it is a tree. And in fact, we have a picture of the tree. We can show you this tree. So this is, uh, this is what's called a bristlecone pine. You know what the nickname for this tree is? It's called the Methuselah tree. I love that. Oldest living human in the, in the Bible. Methuselah tree. This tree, uh, raise your hand if you think it's 1,000 years old. Raise your hand if you think it's 2,000 years old. If you think it's 3,000 years old. 4,000. 4,500. You are right, young lady. This tree is almost 5,000 years old. 5,000 years old. This tree grew out of seeds before the pyramids were built. This tree predates the birth of Christ. Right? Just think about the age of this tree. I was fascinated by this because uh, when you begin to research how do these trees live so long, what you find out is that these trees, there's a secret to their long life. Uh, And one of the main reasons they live so long is because they grow so slow. They grow incredibly slow. They grow at a fraction of the rate of other trees. So compared to other trees, uh, it might at times look like this tree isn't growing at all, in fact. But they are. And so if if you were to look, if you were to uh, look at at the tree rings in in this tree, it's fascinating. What you would find is... uh, Tiny, 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 very compact tree rings because it grows so slowly and so little each year. But what that results in is a super tightly packed trunk of wood, and it makes that wood incredibly dense and strong. And the dense wood is more resistant to things like harsh desert conditions where it grows out in California, uh, to insects, to disease, to things like fire. And so here's why I love this picture, because the person God is making you to be in Christ is a lot more like this than a microwave dinner, right? But we live in a microwave world. (laughs) So I want to highlight this because this is a picture that I think we can hold on to. And this is what it means to grow in Christ. It takes time. It takes a long time. It takes a lifetime. Becoming poor in spirit takes time. Becoming merciful and pure in heart, a peacemaker, takes time. Becoming resilient in the face of persecution takes time. It may not look or feel like anything is happening in your life, but be encouraged. 
It is. It really is. It just takes time. What kind of time? Time with Jesus? Time in the scriptures? Time in confession and repentance and solitude and stillness and in prayer? Time in fellowship and in friendship in Christ? It takes time. So I just want to encourage you. This is a long game in Christ. So if we come back to these Beatitudes again and again, I'm convinced that it will draw us nearer to Jesus if we allow them to, that we will grow and that we will be transformed in time, in God's perfect time. And when Jesus returns, he will complete this good work in us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thanks again for listening. We hope this resource has been helpful to you. If you have questions or are just looking for more information, you can check out our website at apostleshouston.org.